Welcome to, welcome to Liberty Church. If you're visiting this morning, uh, my name's Neil. I'm a pastor of Liberty Church. If you've got a Bible, you could turn to 2 Timothy, which is page 995. 2 Timothy. Uh, we're starting a new series this week, uh, going through uh, this letter from the Apostle Paul to one of his elders and pastors, a young man called Timothy. And we're going to um, spend a few weeks working through uh, chapter by chapter all the way through to uh, November before we hit Christmas. I'm going to read it in a minute, but just to kind of tell you what we're doing this morning, I'm going to give you a bit of background to the letter, just something to really ground us and help us uh, really move off over the next few weeks and get the most of what God wants to bring to us through his word. And and if you're with us, can I really encourage you, um, guys at Rooted are doing the same, just to spend five or ten minutes reading, reading the book. And if you can, read First Timothy as well, which is a really good context, actually, for, for Second Timothy. Um, so do that, it takes no longer than, than 10 minutes. I did joke on Facebook, unless you're Johnny Swales, in which case it'll take you a few days to read, to read through Second Timothy. Um, but yeah, do that. We're just going to look at chapter one this morning. But before we do, I'm going to just, uh, just bring us through a, a little bit of context. But before we do that, I want to ask us a question. This will be interesting to see how it lands in this room. Um, hands up if you've ever written a letter. That's not true. Hands up if you've, no, young people. Hands up if you've ever written a proper letter, like a letter to somebody. There we go, that's a bit more honest. No? Ah, oh, this, like, this is totally bombed. That's not what I expected. I was expecting. So I've written loads of letters in my life. I was, I was kind of thinking, anyone under the age of 30 doesn't really know what a letter is. Like it, okay, let's try this. A handwritten letter, what about that? <laughs> the wrong crowd this morning, haven't I? Oh, well, forget that. Well, that's what, we're, that's what we're reading this morning. A letter from the Apostle Paul. And I think it is, okay, this room is a bit of an exception, but I think it is a bit of a dying thing, writing letters, especially hand-written uh, letters. And I was telling the guys the other day, I've got a box at home, um, this kind of deep full of letters that I've written to Elizabeth over the years, and she's written to me um, over the years. And we used to write all the time. This is before phones and... Um, well, we had like kind of the, the phones, but it was connected to something. Um, but we used to write all the time. It's a really lovely way of just kind of telling someone how much you love them or telling someone an important message or telling someone a, a warning or an encouragement. Um, and we find all of those things in this letter from the Apostle Paul to Timothy. As I said, it's written by Paul. He was an apostle of Jesus, someone who, who met the resurrected Jesus Christ. It's written to Timothy. And it's written into a context where Timothy is an elder, he's a leader in a church in a place called Ephesus. So 2,000 years ago in uh, what is now modern day Turkey, this was one of uh, the thriving churches in the early church, a place called Ephesus. And, and um, Paul writes to Timothy, and as we know, this is his second letter. So he writes first Timothy from uh, Rome. Paul's been, been uh, put under house arrest. For, for witnessing about his faith and then he's released from arrest uh, writes this first letter to Timothy which is very kind of if you spend any time it's very kind of um, it goes piece by piece about things in terms of what the church should look like or what the church should function like or how leaders should should conduct themselves in the church and then just in the timeline Paul gets imprisoned again and this time it's his kind of last imprisonment most likely before he is martyred for his faith as he's in prison, he writes this second letter uh, to Timothy, and he is literally in chains. He writes to 
to, to Timothy and, and you get a sense as you kind of move through the letter that Paul kind of knows that this is the last time he will speak to Timothy. He knows that death is coming for him. He knows that, that this is kind of his last opportunity to really tell Timothy what is on his heart. Um, and I just want to just kind of introduce you to where this all starts. And maybe if you could just put a finger in 2 Timothy, but move back to Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16, which is page 924. Because in, in the book of Acts, we see where, where Paul first meets Timothy. And the letter that we're in, 2 Timothy, is years along the line. But we're introduced a little bit to who Timothy is. I just want to read a few verses so we can be introduced to the man who we're going to be looking at and hearing uh, more about over the next few weeks. Acts chapter 16, verse 1. Paul came also to Derby and to Lystra. A disciple was there named Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman who was a believer, but his father was Greek. He was well spoken of by the brothers at Lystra and Iconium. Paul wanted Timothy to accompany him and he took him and circumcised him because of the Jews who were in those places. For they all knew that his father was a Greek. As they went on their way through the cities, they delivered to them for their observance the decisions that had been reached by the apostles and elders who were in Jerusalem. So the churches were strengthened in the faith and they increased in numbers daily. So we're introduced to Timothy. Paul kind of comes across this young man. And it's interesting, Timothy is, is of mixed race. So his mother is Jewish, uh, his father is Greek. And you kind of get a feeling as you read those verses in Acts that, that most likely his father wasn't a believer. His father was an unbeliever. His mother, and we'll see in a minute, his grandmother were, were believers. They, they, they uh, knew about Jesus, they loved the Lord Jesus, and they trained up Timothy in the way of the Lord. We see Paul takes Timothy, he takes him under his wing, he trains him, he equips him. And what you see kind of in the following chapters is Paul takes Timothy with him from town to town. And Timothy isn't kind of just this kind of little boy who kind of toes along. You get a great impression as you go through uh, all of the letters from Paul that Timothy was a great help to Paul. Timothy was, was his, his right-hand man. He was a real strengthener to Paul, and not only to Paul, but to the churches as well. He wasn't just someone who kind of was a lapdog to Paul, but he was instrumental in the building of the early church. You see that he had a great love for the church. Timothy is described in, in Philippians, as Paul writes to the church in Philippians, as, as the only other one who expressed a deep love for the church in Philippi. He's often referenced by Paul as one who strengthens, who helps. It's interesting, I don't know if you've kind of come across Timothy before, but often he gets this label as timid Timothy. Have you heard that? I don't get that impression at all. Actually, you see someone, um, as, he, as he moves from town to town, and, and we'll see in a minute, that Paul leaves him in probably the toughest church plant that maybe has ever existed. So you guys, you know, it's going to be difficult, but it's not going to be as tough as Ephesus. And, and, and by, by, by a great mile, he does a good job. You don't get the impression that you're someone who kind of fades into the background and, and, and moves away from struggle. But you do see, as Paul writes this letter, that he is under struggle. That he is feeling discouraged. 
So specifically what's happening here, he's writing to this church in Ephesus and there are false teachers in the church. There's kind of unruly behavior in the church. There's a specific heresy uh, which is being kind of uh, bounded around in the church and probably the heresy is, is this heresy called Gnosticism. So you might have come across this before and Gnosticism would say that, that anything that is created is evil. It's evil and we should kind of stay away from it. And I had these kind of polarizing views so you could go to one extreme, which was called asceticism. And asceticism was where you would discipline your body and, and you, would, you would abstain from all sorts of things because the body was created and, and in essence, the body is evil. So they wouldn't marry. They would have all sorts of strange diets. So that was a one extreme of Gnosticism. The other extreme was just complete immorality. So they said, well, if this is kind of all evil and, and there's of no kind of uh, worth in the body, well, let's just do what we want with it do what we want and so they just did whatever they want for their personal benefit they denied um, all sorts of um, foundational truths like like the resurrection of the body they were sexually immoral that was the kind of the pervading heresy that was in this early church in Ephesus where Timothy was an elder and a leader and Timothy is struggling you'll see that as you read through he's struggling and so Paul writes him this letter to encourage him to strengthen him, to help him to kind of fight against, against the, the heresy that is there, to fight against others who are coming in to drag the church down. He's trying to help him in that fight and to help him to raise up others who will help him. Paul writes for, for Timothy's encouragement, for a warning, for, for instruction about his ministry. There's all sorts of specific things that you see kind of Paul saying to help Timothy in his ministry, but you also see Paul just express his deep love for Timothy. Like he doesn't just see Timothy as this kind of elder who's got issues and so I need to kind of write all these instructions so we can get this church right. Like Paul deeply loves Timothy. Look down at verse 1. We'll read chapter 1 in its entirety in a moment. But back into Timothy, look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus, to Timothy, my beloved child. My beloved child. Verse 1 of chapter 2, you then, my child. Can you hear that language? Like Paul isn't seeing him as, as just this, this guy who's kind of got, got a little bit stuck in this situation. He's like, you're like my son. Timothy, my child, my beloved child. You will see that chapter after chapter that the Apostle Paul has a deep, deep love for Timothy. You also see that he has a deep love for the church. Paul is zealous for the church to be what Christ wants it to be. Think about where Paul is. So Paul is writing from jail. Writing from jail, know that it's only days or weeks or months perhaps that he is going to get executed. What for? For kind of speaking out some kind of political message, for, for, for doing some sort of kind of heinous crime. No, he's been executed because he loves the church and he loves Christ Jesus. He's been executed because he will not stop in, in planting churches, in multiplying communities, in telling the great news of the gospel so that more churches can be raised up. That's why Paul's head literally is on the line here. Paul loves the church. He is zealous for the church. He loves Timothy and he loves the church dearly. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy and Titus are often, often bound together and collected together and they're called the pastoral epistles. And listen to this. This is what uh, Thomas Aquinas 
said, who was a, a theologian um, a few hundred years ago. He says this about 2 Timothy. He says, Paul deals with a pastoral care which should be so great that it will even accept martyrdom for the sake of the care of the flock. That's what you see in these three letters. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. You see Paul exhorting Timothy and exhorting us as we read it now to come to a place where we would love the church as much as he does, as much as Christ does, and that we would literally be willing to lay our lives down for him. Isn't that incredible? I don't, I don't know where your mind is at when you walked in here this morning or when you've been thinking about Liberty Church or thinking about Rooted or, or whatever it is. I don't know where your mind goes when you think of the church. But I believe as we work through this letter together that, that God by his Holy Spirit wants us to come to a place where we would literally love this body. Love this body as much that we would be willing to lay our lives down for it. And that sounds crazy, doesn't it? That sounds ridiculous in a, in a world where we would lay our lives down for absolutely nothing except for ourselves. But the word of God compels us to because Christ did. And we have to walk in his example. That's where Paul wants to bring his dearly beloved child, this elder and pastor Timothy. He wants to bring him to a place where he would see all of the struggle. He would see all of the discouragement. But at the same time, he would see that he is called to love and serve these people and build God's church. How does this letter apply to us then? How are we to, to kind of take anything of value from this? Because, because the letter is called the second letter of Paul to Timothy. So it's not the second letter of Paul to Liberty Church or to, to Matt or, or to Nathan. This letter is written to Timothy. So we're just going to kind of stand back and kind of see what Paul's saying to Timothy and think, oh, that's really helpful for Timothy. That must have been really valuable for Timothy. Great stuff for Timothy. No. Paul's intent was to encourage Timothy, but God in his just beauty and majesty through his word speaks to us by his Holy Spirit, by what we see in here. And so this is kind of foundational for how I want us to work through the next few weeks. I want us to kind of have this mindset as we read this letter and see Paul saying specific things to Timothy. I want us to be able to see that, that he is writing to Timothy, who is an elder in a church, but also by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit can speak to us, can teach us through this passage. And this is how I want us to see it. The apostles in the early church were passionate and held a deep conviction about something called the priesthood of all believers. The priesthood of all believers. And I want to just kind of just briefly take us through what that means. In Genesis chapter 12, God comes to a man called Abraham and he says to Abraham, he gives him a covenant. He gives him a promise that, that through Abraham, through his seed, he is gonna, he's going he's gonna to build his people. He's going to gather his people. And those people will outnumber the stars in the sky and the sand in the sea. And you see kind of from Genesis chapter 2 a progression of how God forms and brings his people together. It kind of reaches a bit of a climax point in Exodus chapter 19 uh, verses 5 and 6. And God comes to, to God's people. He's led them out of slavery in Egypt. And this is what he says. Now therefore if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant. You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. A kingdom of priests, God calls them. Now, now, there was a specific kind of person or people within God's people who were priests, but he is saying this over all of Israel. 
You will be to me a kingdom of priests. Every one of you will have a priestly function in God's family. A kingdom of priests and a holy nation. And if you know your Old Testament, you'll know they kind of hear that from God. And they probably do the exact opposite. So a priest, if you think of the function of a priest or or a minister, that is someone who will show people God. It will bring people into communion with God. It will put the goodness of God on display. Did Israel do that? Now and again, but by and large in the Old Testament, you see they're absolutely rubbish at it. They fail royally in steps Christ. The new covenant, Hebrews chapter 6, verse 20, you, you, you see the writer of Hebrews talk about Jesus being a better priest. One who comes not in the line of Aaron, who was the, the, the priest for Israel at the time that Exodus was written, but comes in the line of a man called Melchizedek, who is a, who is a kingly priest, who came from a line of kings, who blessed Abraham in Genesis chapter 14. And the writer of Hebrews in the New Testament says that, that Jesus, Jesus comes from this line of Melchizedek and he is our great high priest whose priestly work, whose work to put all the character of God on display, eclipses the work of Aaron's and any other priest that has gone before him. And we see that in Christ's life, his death, his resurrection. As Christ comes and his body is broken and his blood is, is shed, he removes the divide between us and God for all of eternity. That is, that is the perfect work of a priest. Every priest that comes before him can only do that partially or momentarily. And it requires the sacrifice of, of tens of thousands, probably over all the centuries, animals. And Jesus steps in with a perfect life. The spotless lamb without blemish and once and for all is a sacrifice for God's people. He comes as a great high priest. And then we read this in 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. This is written to God's people. It's written to us. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You see the kind of mirror and the reflection of the calling in Exodus? Kingdom of priests. A kingdom of priests who fail fail so often. Jesus steps in and fulfills that role perfectly. And now he says, that's who you are. You are a kingdom of priests. You You are ministers. You are priests. You are people who will put on display the goodness of God. You are people who will proclaim the excellencies. That's the gospel. Proclaim the excellencies of God who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's what the priestly function does. That's what the the minister does. It proclaims the gospel, not just by our lives. We saw this last week, but with our words. The priesthood of all believers is a conviction that every single one of us is part of this kingdom of priests. The job of proclamation of the gospel isn't reserved for me. This is a function that all of the body do. And so let's just kind of bring this back to where we are this morning. This is a lot of background, a lot of context, but we're not going to repeat this each week. Paul is writing to Timothy, who is a minister of the gospel. And there are specific things there which are helpful for Timothy. But every single one of us, if we are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ are ministers of the gospel. We are part of the priesthood of all believers, a kingdom of priests. And so we can read this with eyes like ministers and receive instruction, receive encouragement in the same way that Timothy does from the Apostle Paul. Done. Context, background, nailed. Remember that each week. 
please remember that each week. That's really helpful stuff for us to really pull out what the Holy Spirit is trying to speak to us. Now let's read it. Chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God, according to the promise of the life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my beloved child, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony of our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us and called us into a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, for which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher, which is why I suffer as I do. But I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard until that day what has been entrusted to me. Follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me, in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. By the Holy Spirit who dwells in us, God, the good deposit entrusted to you. You are aware that all who were in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Philegius and Hermogenes. May the Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chains. But when he arrived in Rome, he searched for me earnestly and found me. May the Lord grant him to find mercy from the Lord on that day. And you know you well, you well know all the service he rendered at Ephesus. You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the privileged position we are in standing here in history, being able to look back and see your promises fulfilled through time. We thank you for the calling that you put on your people to be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. We thank you you've not left us on our own, but you've given us your word and your spirit and one another. So help us to use all of those things this morning. Help us to receive from all of those things this morning. And with our aim, our goal, with our heart's desire this morning, that we would see you, that we would exalt you, Jesus, that we would hold fast to you, that we would believe you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Here's what I want us to grab hold of briefly as we just look back at this chapter. Our ministry is from Jesus, it's about Jesus, and it's sustained by Jesus. If we are a kingdom of priests, if we have given role, been given roles as ministers for the gospel, I want us to kind of leave here this morning. If you believe that Jesus is your Lord and Savior, come, come away from me this morning and see that, that our ministry is from Jesus, about Jesus, and it's sustained by Jesus. It's interesting as you look through this first chapter, and you'll see this as you go through the rest of the chapters here. This is a letter which is written to Timothy. 
Well, who's the main character in chapter one here? Go on, someone give her a go. Sunday school, easy, safe answer. Jesus. Jesus. God is mentioned 22 times in chapter one. I don't know whether that kind of stuck out to you there. It's subtle, but he's there 22 times. And specifically, Christ Jesus is all over chapter one. So what, here's what's really interesting. Paul is writing to Timothy, who is discouraged, who is, who is kind of battling against these different heresies, who is struggling against opposition. And what's, what's first and foremost on Paul's mind? Jesus. Do you know what Timothy needs to hear? Do you know what he needs to be reminded of? Jesus. It's all over chapter one. Paul is purposefully reminding Timothy of the Lord Jesus Christ. If our main point is that our ministry is from Jesus, about Jesus, and sustained by Jesus, the application this morning that I want us to leave with is is to be reminded of Jesus. That's what Paul's doing here to Timothy. He's just calling him back. You see that three times. I want to remind you. I want to bring to your remembrance. Paul is very aware of everything that is going on. He's saying, Paul, Timothy, lift your head. Lift your head out of the circumstance, out of the frustration, out of the opposition, and see Jesus. So our ministry is from Jesus, first of all. I want us to to be encouraged this morning. Look down at verse 9. I want us to be encouraged that our ministry is from Jesus. Jesus who saves us, verse 9, and calls us. As ministers of the gospel, we have been called by Christ. It's beautiful, isn't it? You see the kind of legacy of of Timothy from his grandmother, Lois, and then dropping down to his mother, Eunice, and then dropping down to Timothy. And you see a kind of gospel legacy for the generations. It's a a beautiful picture, isn't it? But, But they didn't call Timothy. Jesus called Timothy. Verse 9, it is by the power of God who saved us and called us. That is a privilege, folks. Remember that the the calling that God has given us is given by God. God did not God did, did not kind of kind of look out, and again we saw this last week, and look for the best amongst us. And we didn't even kind of stretch out and choose God. God chose us. And Paul reminds Timothy in verse 9, Timothy, this has nothing to do with any good works that you have done. No, he just chose you. He chose you. Hear that this morning. If you're kind of frustrated and, and, and pushing against opposition, whether that's in, in the flesh, in the world, whatever it is, here, here, if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, he chose you. I've had my last week in work this week, and it's been weird in so many ways and lovely in so many ways. And... Um, some of my team uh, got a book made for me with lots of lovely messages from people around uh, my organization. And I got um, a message from the chief executive of our organization, from the chairwoman, um, which is really, really lovely. And um, kind of reflecting on that this week, it kind of filled me with pride in so many ways. And then reflecting on this passage, I was like, yeah, these are important people. Sir James Bevan is an important person, our chief executive. But God is so much bigger than him. So James Bevan ultimately gave me the job. But God created Sir James Bevan who gave me the job. And God has called me with a specific ministry to proclaim the gospel, to proclaim that I've been brought from a a kingdom of darkness into a kingdom of light. 
king of the universe has called you. You to work for him. Feel the weight of that for a moment. The king of the universe, the Lord of all creation has called you. Remember that. In those moments of opposition, when you are sitting bored, bored with life, bored with your job, the king of all creation has called you by name. When you are apathetic to the ministry that he has called you into, to be salt and light in your workplace, in your home, in your family, remember, Jesus has called you. Paul wants to remind Timothy that his ministry comes from Jesus. He wants to remind him that his ministry is about Jesus. Look at verse 9 again. By the power of God who saved us and called us to a holy calling. That this that they've been called into is a ministry which is all about Jesus. They've been given a holy calling, a calling which you see if you keep on reading, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus. That's where our calling comes from before the ages began. Our calling was given to us before we even existed. Before the ages began, God God had a call for you to be his minister, to be one of his priests in his kingdom. We have been given a holy calling which is all about Jesus and look at verse 10 before the ages began and which now has been manifested through the appearing of our saviour Christ Jesus I love this listen who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel so Paul is saying your ministry comes from Jesus it's a holy calling and it is deeply rooted and connected to to the work of Christ Jesus who abolished death brought you life and brought immortality to life through the gospel our ministry is deeply rooted and connected to the gospel that is the gospel the fact that Jesus Christ who is perfect, who is God, steps into our world. And and we are a world who by our very nature, people who by our very nature are crippled by death, Who who have a guilty verdict spoken over us because of our nature, which is sin. And the punishment for our sin is death. That speaks loudly over our lives. That is the identity that we walk in by our very nature. Every single one of us. And Jesus steps in to our existence and abolishes that. What a word that is. What does that bring to remembrance? Slavery. We were enslaved by death, enslaved by our sin. And our great rescuer, Jesus, enters into our mess and brings about the greatest abolition that this world has ever seen and breaks the shackles of our sin and moves away death. And not only that, but brings us life. Through Jesus' death, through his resurrection, we are not just released from our bonds, but we are given a new identity, a new purpose. He speaks and gives us life. And not just life here and now, but a mortal life. He brings immortality to light through the gospel. That is, he shows us our need for him. That at the end of this life, there is more. And if we are not found in Christ, that more is something that we desperately don't want to be. 
And by his grace and his mercy, he opens our eyes to see that. To see how desperately we need him. To see how desperately we need a rescuer. To abolish death for us and bring us life. Our ministry is from Jesus and it is about Jesus. That is the message that we are to declare. Jesus' perfect life. His death which brings an abolition of our death. And his life which he brings through his resurrection. And Paul is saying to Timothy, remember that. We need to remember that. As we leave this place and go about our business and work our jobs and be husbands and wives and children, whatever it is. Remember that our holy calling, our ministry is all about Jesus. I don't know whether you had this when you were younger, but there was a trend of these bands, WWJD. And I was trying to remember what they all were. Push, pray until something happens. Frog, I can't remember what that one was. Fully reliant on God. God. Cheesy, cheesy as cheese. And I had some of the t-shirts as well. I used to love the Christian t-shirts. But you know what it did? As cheesy as they were, it reminded me what I was about. As I looked down at my wrist and I'm kind of writing or people are seeing me in the streets, it reminded me that actually the, the holy calling that I've been given is all about Jesus. Let's not forget that, folks. Let's not forget that our ministry is from Jesus and it is about Jesus. And finally, it is sustained by Jesus. Timothy is in trouble. He's in trouble. He's discouraged. He's having a bit of an identity crisis. He's, he's kind of losing people in the church and, and kind of exhausting his time, pushing against the heretics. But Paul knows exactly how he feels. You see that down in verse 15. You are aware that all who were in Asia turned away from me, among whom are Philegius and Hermogenes. There are two guys in the church who, who, who at one point were, were right by Paul, were for Paul. We're kind of proclaiming the things that Paul proclaimed. But there comes a point in time where they start to turn against them. They turn against them to the point where they leave the church. They abandon Paul. These are men who probably Paul trusted, who he'd invested in, who he'd maybe defended at some point, and they abandon him. It's encouraging, isn't it? He kind of talks about the two who have abandoned and then verse 16, he goes on to tell us about one who stuck with him. Onesiphorus, who, who refreshed him, who came to visit him and seek him out when he was in Rome. Paul knows what it is to be discouraged. He knows what it is to feel abandonment. He knows what it is to be let down. He knows what it is to be frustrated. And like a dad does to a son, he, he brings Timothy aside and he, and he instructs him. He gives him kind of five exhortations through the passage, five encouragements. Do, do this. I've been there. I, I know where it's like, do this. So you see in verse six, he says to Timothy, he says, fan into flame the gift. In verse eight, he says, don't be ashamed of Jesus. Share in the suffering for the gospel. Verse 13 says, follow sound doctrine. Follow, follow, follow the truths of God's word. Verse 14, he says, guard the good deposit. That's the gospel. Guard the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 1, he says to Timothy, finally, be strong. Five exhortations that he gives to Timothy. In light of your frustrations, in light of your struggles, do these five things. But I wonder if you noticed anything with those do's. Every single one of the things that Paul calls Timothy to is accompanied 
with his statement. Listen to this again. Verse 6. Fan into, fan, into, fan into flame the gift of God. God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. So he's calling them to do something. But he's saying, you do this with Jesus. God is going to equip you to do this. The next one, don't be ashamed of Jesus sharing the suffering of the gospel, verse 8, by the power of God. Jesus is with you. God is with you. He's going to give you the power to do that. Verse 13, follow sound doctrine in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Do this, Paul. Do this. But you're not on your own. Do this through Christ Jesus. The next one, God, the good deposit. Verse 14, how? By the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Do this, Timothy. But you're not on your own. Don't do this on your own. Do this through God himself. And finally, chapter 2, verse 1. Timothy, be strong. Be strengthened. Does Paul expect him to do that on his own? No, what does he say? You then, my child, be strengthened by the grace that is in Christ Jesus. Timothy, Timothy has this role as a minister. Paul says, it's hard. There are distractions, there are discouragements, there are frustrations. Do these things. Do these things. But do them with Christ working through you. Christ strengthening you. Christ helping you. The Spirit of God working with you and for you. Timothy can't do any of these things on his own. But he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. Each of the things that he is called to do are sustained by God himself. God does never give us anything. God does never call us into anything which he won't give us help to finish. And Paul, I don't think, is telling Timothy that he doesn't know already. I don't think that any of these things are particularly new to Timothy. He's reminding him of what he knows. He's reminding him so he can correct his course and finish the race. That is the big application of this passage. That is the big thing that Paul is bringing to Timothy. Remember. Remember what matters. Remember that this is a ministry that is given to you. It is about Jesus. And it will be sustained by Jesus. Remember. Remember the important things. I was in um, our neighbor's house yesterday. He's 96. He climbed out the window and was in the yard in his pajamas, kind of early, early hours of the morning. And I managed to get him back in and I sat with him for two hours having a cup of tea. And it was lovely. And he, could, he was telling me about kind of his childhood and named all of his grandchildren and kind of just loads of lovely stories there for a few hours. And it got to the point the nurse came in and we were trying to figure out what tablet he'd had that morning. Couldn't remember. Now, it's all very well kind of remembering who your children are and all the things of the past, but the thing that mattered for Dave was... Have you had your antibiotics? I can't remember. Remember what is important. Hold fast to what is important. Root yourself in what is important. It's interesting, isn't it, when we're in moments of discouragement, we're in moments of frustration. So often our first things that will come to remembrance are our weakness, our sin, our failures, the sin of others, the failures of others. How often do we turn our first remembrance to Christ? 
how often do we remember that actually we are ministers called by the king of the universe into a holy calling that we are not left to do on our own but a calling which is sustained by Christ himself. Folks, as we come towards communion and share this meal together, can I encourage us this week to set our hearts on Christ, to remember him, to remember the goodness of the gospel. And as we remember him, to live lives which are about him, fulfilling the commission which he has given us, to be a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession that we will proclaim the excellencies of him who call us out of darkness and into his marvellous light. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for we thank you for your perfect life. We thank you for your death on a cross. We thank you that you resurrected and defeated Satan, sin and death and, and through your resurrection that we have been given hope of life eternal. We thank you for the great commission which you have given your church, for the holy call in which we have been given. We thank you that for those of us who are yours, we are ministers, we are priests, we are your ambassadors in this world. And so help us. We need your help. We need your help to, to live out that ministry well. We need your help to, to live through the frustrations and the trials and the struggles of life all the time focusing on you. So help us by your Holy Spirit. Help us to remember the important things. Help us to remember who we are and who we are in light of who you are. Help us to remember the, the beauty of the gospel. Help us to recall, specifically to recall, truths of, of who you are from your scripture. Help us to remember your character. Help us to remember your work and help us to, to hear those things speak louder and, and, and much clearer over, over our sin, over our struggle, over the sin of others. Would we be a people, Lord Jesus, who fix our eyes on you and who live out our ministry and our calling faithfully? Help us to finish well and help us to do that for your name's sake and for your glory alone. Amen. As we come and take this meal, I just want to read us a few verses from Luke chapter 2. I'll just read it. You don't need to turn there. And listen to what Jesus says as he instructs his disciples about what this meal is. When the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which I've given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Do you hear what Jesus said? 
Do this in remembrance of me. As we come and we share this meal together, it's good and it is right for us to reflect on our sin. It's good and it is right for us to reflect on, 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 on how desperately we need the, the forgiveness and the, and, the, and, and the redeeming work of Christ. But let us not forget as we approach this table, Jesus. Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. So as we take this meal, we go just to spend a few moments in quiet and remembering our sin, confessing and repenting of our sin, holding on to the truth of the gospel that, that your sins have been forgiven. And then spend time remembering Christ. Remember Jesus. Remember who he is. Remember his work. Remember what he's doing for you now at the right hand of the Father. Set your eyes on him and as you do that, take this meal as a celebration that he has called you. And right now, over your sin, he still calls you his own. He calls you his brother and your friend, his friend. So I'm going to give thanks for this meal. The way we do it here is just take a few moments where you are, just seated and quiet. Take a few moments in prayer. And when you're ready, if you're a believer, if you would believe that the Lord Jesus Christ is your Savior and your Redeemer, I encourage you to come up and take a bit of bread. You can eat it here or bring it back to your seat. Take the wine or the juice. We often kind of take this together as well. So if you want to share this with a friend or with someone that you come with this morning, you can do that. This is a celebration. It's also a time where we affirm who we are, that we are the body of Christ. So it's a time for us to comfort and encourage one another, maybe pray with each other. So let me give thanks, and then uh, when you're ready, just come up and take note of this meal. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your body which was broken. We thank you for your blood which was shed for the forgiveness of our sins. As we reflect on our sin and we reflect on the ways that we have not walked in the ways that you would have us walk, Help us, help us to see the weight of our sin and the gravity of our sin, which is so, so much and so, so grievous that it's sent you to the cross. Help us to remember that. But help us to hear forgiveness over that sin. Help us to hear redeem, ransom. Help us to remember the death that was held us so tight has been taken away from us, has been abolished for us. Help us to remember you. Help us to delight in you as we take this meal. Holy Spirit, set our, set our hearts, incline our hearts towards Lord Jesus right now. Help us to focus on him. Help us to worship him and praise him and glorify him as we share this meal together. And so Jesus, we thank you for the cross. We thank you for the resurrection. We thank you for the life that we have been given, for your death which was given for us. Jesus, we love you, we thank you, it's in your name that we pray.